Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. I'm unable to record the podcast fully today due to an issue with my voice. You can probably tell it's not very strong right now. I had a similar problem last year, and uh, thankfully I'm, I'm going to get to the doctor much quicker this time, and hopefully we'll find out what the problem is. But I'd appreciate it if y'all would pray for me and my voice um, as we try to figure out what the problem is. In the meantime, I don't want to leave you without content, so I want to share with you an inside look to some of the material that we have in PeaceWorks University. This is a conversation that I had with my good friend Dave Dunham regarding sex and marriage, and it's part of the masterclass content that you can find in PeaceWorks University. Thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you enjoy uh, this bonus content. God bless. Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. All right, welcome back, everybody, uh, to the master class. We're so thankful for PeaceWorks University and everybody who's a part of this community. And I have a friend with us today, Dave Donham. He is pastor, biblical counselor, author of uh, some books I'm going to have him tell you about here in a minute. And we're going to be talking a little bit about sex today, which is, I think, one of our favorite topics. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But obviously, in our context, guys, this is a hotbed issue, especially with the theological ramifications of, uh, of the New Testament and some of the ways in which passages are twisted in order to coerce sexual activities. So David, welcome to the Masterclass, buddy. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. So uh, kick it off for us. I'm going to throw it to you. Talk to us a little bit about our topic today, where we find it, and from a pastoral perspective, maybe why it's so important. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, there's a number of passages that we could look to that address the general topic of, of sex, but I think uh, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, the, the field of interest you're in, two through five is one of those passages uh, that gets um, twisted uh, and misrepresented. Uh, and so, you know, there's this idea, I think, that's been sort of developed within conservative circles that sex is a right that husbands are owed within marriage and they're owed it in this sense that whenever they want it however they want it uh they're to give it a wife is to give it um and uh and particularly as it relates to first corinthians 7 the passage there talks about you know a wife's body does not belong to her belongs to her husband and so that passage is used as a um, sort of a, a biblical foundation for getting what I want as a husband. Well, that's a big issue in abuse work because as many of our folks here in uh, PeaceWorks U could articulate is that power and control are usually those motivational pieces. We call them mm -hmm. those trunk on the tree pieces that bring life to the fruit of abusive behavior. So when we want something, and it's that old biblical counseling adage, guys, am I willing to sin to get it? Mm -hmm. Am I willing to sin if I can't get it? And so sexual activity falls into that category. And certainly sexual abuse can include 
physical assaults on the body, but it can also, I think, fall into the realm of coercive sex acts mm -hmm. and non-consensual sex acts. So I think this is a tremendously beneficial topic mm -hmm. when scripture, which spiritual abuse falls in this category, is then weaponized to use to create a coercive environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, because, you know, we're, we're talking as, as two Christians and we're dealing with abuse in the church, you know, I think one of the things that I'm sure you've um, communicated often in these classes is just, you know, the use of scripture to uh, validate my or justify my sinful behavior. And I think for a lot of wives in that context, then because scripture is used, they feel like they don't have any other options. Like this is, this is what is required of me because quote unquote, God said so. So with that comes this threat, I would assume, maybe, I don't know if you've seen it, Dave, or not, but this threat of if I don't comply, right, if I don't give in, if I don't um, assume this role based on my husband's demands, then I'm also disobedient to God, and there's oh, yeah. ramifications to that. So have you seen that maybe in your own counseling practice where oh, wives yeah. have been carrying around that type of uh, spiritualized guilt? Yeah. In fact, what's interesting, I was just thinking about this with uh, one of our, our counseling team members the other other week, uh, that it seems that a number of our abuse cases, as they're revealed to us, they start as a wife who comes feeling like she's not a very good Christian. Uh, sometimes her husband has outright told her this. And so she comes in sort of broken, heartbroken, questioning her salvation. Uh, and as you converse and pull back the layers, all of a sudden, you realize, oh, there's the reason you're feeling that way is because you have this dynamic going on at home that's falsely reinforcing that, that concept. Yeah, so as a counseling pastor and as somebody who's kind of overseeing other counselors, and this is a little side point, but it's something I like to ask when we get pastoral folks in here. How do you, what are your first steps when you have that type of abuse red flag? What are some of the first steps you do as a leader to, to intervene on those cases? So usually, you know, our counselors all fill out a report after every case, and I read those reports every week. And so they'll, they'll kind of highlight, hey, I think this might be an abuse situation, or uh, they'll say, I need a call from, you know, the overseeing uh, director here to, to get some insight on this. So usually at that point, we will say, okay, why don't we separate the husband and wife uh, and uh, we'll get, uh, you know, more counselors involved. We'll get, a, you know, a, an advocate for the wife. We'll get uh, a counselor for the husband. Our uh, challenge as a church is we don't have nearly as many um, uh, equipped counts male counselors as we need to address the, sadly, the number of cases that end up coming our way. So, yeah, well, I'm super excited. I'm sure I, I can already tell some PeaceWorks U students are probably like, yes, doing the, the appropriate next steps of a separate counseling and care. And then anytime you mention advocates, we get really excited. So let's go, let's go back to the spiritual abuse and, and sexual coercion for just a moment. So in that, let's say we've got some, some, a case that's been revealed to us and we want to drill in a little bit more. What may be some of the uh, maybe poor advice associated with that passage, uh, Paul's words, or maybe some of the uh, implications or impact that you've witnessed as a counselor with wives who are coerced uh, sexually? Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'll just kind of spitball here. Things coming to my, off the top of my head here, but, you know, I think one of the things that the passage is sometimes used to suggest is that, um, you know, Paul talks there in 1 Corinthians 7 about 
you know, if, uh, uh, if, a, if a husband is sort of burning, if a man is burning with passion, he should get married so that he can have intimacy. And uh, then it talks about, you know, the, you know, shifts language to the, your, your body is not your own, but belongs to your spouse kind of mentality and, uh, or concept. And so I think sometimes what is implied um, by well-meaning people, and especially by those looking to control the situation, is that um, sexual, the temptation towards sexual sin is a wife's responsibility to mitigate. So if a husband views pornography, if a husband is um, tempted to uh, adultery, if a husband is forceful in his sexual activity, it's really her fault. She's not supplying his need enough. She's not taking care of him. Uh, so I think there's this, um, I mean, this implication that all of his sexual sin is somehow her responsibility. Uh, so that puts a tremendous amount of weight on wives. Yeah, I would say, you know, and as you mentioned that, I've heard that taught mm -hmm. indirectly, sometimes directly, I would guess, but I've heard it even implications of uh, sexual immorality and pedophilia mm -hmm. and things. And you're like, where do you get that? Like, how do you draw that line? But then combining that with, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but ladies in particular who've been raised in an evangelical environment where modesty and purity yeah. were somehow um, treated in the same way. Yeah. Right? That it's your responsibility as a girl to mitigate the temptation and sexuality and sinfulness of, of boys. So I, you're agreeing, I'm guessing, yeah. you see some of that compiling with some of these? Oh, things? absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that's the thing about any one of these subjects, I'm sure, uh, within the church, they're part of such a larger culture. So we're never really, you know, when we're trying to address an issue like this, we're never just trying to address an issue or an interpretation or a, a passage. Uh, it's part of a larger culture. And so, you know, I think one of the things that every church will have to wrestle with and every Christian will have to wrestle with is what are the, the related pieces that are feeding this idea? Because um, sometimes I can get to the, okay, maybe that's not the best use of that passage, but I've got all this other um, support that is still in place, reinforcing the same idea. Right. So with that comes, and our students will know this as well, and you know this as well, in abuse, with, with victims in particular, there is this gray, foggy type of um, terrain without a map of navigating the distinctions of guilt and shame. Yeah. And we do a poor job, I think, in biblical counseling, because I, I think sometimes we'll look at advocates, and I'm pointing at myself as an advocate, as if you don't hold victims accountable for anything, which is not true. I mean, advocates and counselors should do a good job of holding victims accountable for areas and where they miss the mark, but not in the context of how they're being abused. Right. Always handle the abuse first. And I think that's been one of the rubs is, generally speaking, culturally, many of the ladies we're dealing with have already been yeah. judged, convicted, condemned. Yeah. There's this marble cake of guilt and shame that has just attached itself in many ways to their identity. Yeah. So, you know, we have a, a situation of a wife who has, who has been unwilling to, to be intimate with her spouse for uh, a couple of years. And we can recognize from a, you know, theological biblical standpoint, yeah, that's not healthy. That's not good. Um, you know, it may in, it may involve some sinfulness, but in the context of conversation, as you uncover abuse, you realize hey, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why that is the way it is. And while, there may come a point at which we need to address the, 
resistance to intimacy. It's not now, it's not at this point. Um, that, that's a much later conversation. Fantastic. I mean, that's really helpful just to at least have a normal conversation about this without it being, you know, just filled with, I think, the conjecture that maybe we're used to when it comes to aspects of modesty and purity and yeah. marital rights and so on. Is there anything, Dave, that you can help us or tell us that'll help us understand how to use the passage appropriately or maybe some of the things that Paul's teaching that would be helpful for us to avoid those abuse dynamics? You know, I think fundamentally the, the passage is really about the mutual responsibility in protecting the marriage bed. Um, you know, so what tends to happen, you know, we read the, the scriptures often through the the context of our own experience and our own culture. And so we can get, um, uh, we can miss things that are overt in the text because we're interpreting them through our lens. But the text does not say that a wife's body belongs to her husband. It says that both their bodies belong to their other spouse. And so I think, you know, uh, an abusive and controlling husband is reading one part of the passage and emphasizing that your body belongs to me. But the text actually tells us that his body belongs to her, which means if he is using his body in a way that she doesn't want him to, she has the right biblical grounds to say, no, I don't want you to do that. So, I mean, just often it's been fascinating to open the scriptures with guys and read that passage and highlight that point for them and help them see just they have been completely ignoring another entire aspect of the text. Now, of course, you know, they always have justifications and explanations and reasons, but to emphasize, there's a whole other part of the passage that you're not addressing. That's fantastic. Like, and I, and I agree. I think that passage is more about mutuality. I think if you even compare it, uh, gang, if you get a chance to compare it to say, um, that entire passage to say Exodus 21, mm. I kind of feel like Paul has that in mind as somebody who's an expert in Jewish case law mm. to see it more as a help for women yeah. than is some kind of tool or weapon for men. But beyond that, I think the idea of mutuality is so key there that, you know, yes, it, we do want intimacy in marriage. And as pastors, we think that's a healthy, um, healthy spirituality, but to condemn not tonight, honey, like it's way off, way off yeah. base because it's yeah. completely within the realm of that passage to say, not tonight, honey, maybe tomorrow, maybe once yeah. this is handled, we can, we can engage in that. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, just going back to the, the concept of marriage as a, a picture relationship that Christ has with his church, um, you know, you get the very clear distinction between what power and control in intimacy look like versus the way Jesus treats his bride. Uh, and I think, you know, when you are throwing out the concept of that sex is from a context of intimate relationship and it's about building intimate relationships. So it's about, it's about communion. So when you, when you push that aside, I think you've missed the entire point that God has established for intimacy in the first place. So if, if sex is, is I'm having to coerce my spouse and, or I'm, I'm, uh, I'm using sex in ways that are uh, making her feel demeaned, used, objectified, belittled. Uh, I have robbed intimacy of what God designed it to do, breed communion between a husband and a wife. 
So I'm already far afield of what God has set up. If there's no relational intimacy or it's, it's poor, then sex is, is something that needs to be sort of waited on until I can fix those issues. Um, but that's fantastic. I mean, that's powerful. And the other thing about that passage, and I'm going to spring one on you because I know this wasn't in the in the uh, email exchange, but you know, I think it's the same passage where Paul, in reference to abandonment, refers to a willingness to live at peace. Mm. And it seems to me that violating this these principles of sexual mutuality, sexual intimacy, relational intimacy, uh, really contrasts well, I think, with this idea of living at peace. And it certainly to require a victim, A, A, to give in to rapacious behavior mm. is not only unhealthy, but dastardly, but then two, to require a victim to remain in yeah. the presence of rapacious behavior without confrontation uh, and intervention seems unwise and foolish to me as well. That just popped in my brain, brothers. So while we're here, what do you think about this idea? Oh, of uh, yeah, I would, with I would totally peace? agree. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I think I think, and I know you, you've talked about this probably countless times, um, but I think the desire that many pastors and church leaders have to protect the integrity and sanctity of marriage leads them to uh, misapply scripture at times or ignore implications of scripture or ignore overt teachings of scripture. We have good desires that we allow to uh, trump all the other things that scripture says. Um, and so I, I think in this case, you know, sadly, there are often situations where husbands, you know, will complain about the lack of intimacy at home uh, and pastors believing in the importance of good relational intimacy for marriage and the health of a marriage will imply or outright say to abuse victims, you know, uh, sex would help your marriage, you know, it would it would make things better, it would, you know, uh, rebuild some of the relationship you, you are desiring to have with your spouse or, um, and, and that's just, it's terribly unwise ad advice, but I, I also think it's destructive to, to victims, so. Yeah, yeah, me too. That's interesting, I wanna, I wanna drive down into that further, but I think let's get back to the passage. Anything else as, as we're talking about this, this passage, any other applications or pieces that you could share with us? Hmm. Well, I, I, I'm inclined just to, to maybe double back on the mutual responsibility. You know, one of the things that we've been working with our counseling team on um, is when we talk about spiritual leadership in the home, we want to emphasize three things with guys, support, safety, and stability. Um, and so when we look into the issue of sexual intimacy, asking those questions about any particular sexual act, are we in this moment communicating issue, uh, communicating support, safety, and stability? Uh, if I'm coercing my wife, if I'm forcing my wife, if I'm um, uh, sort of manipulating my wife into giving me what uh, I want, if she leaves intimacy feeling like she is um, an object, like she's ashamed of herself, like she's uh, sinful and dirty, then I have completely failed to lead her well in our sexual activity. And so giving guys the, the chance to think through those three um, sort of principles um, as a way to, to frame even the conversation. But I think Paul, because he's so, he's, he's giving us this idea of the husband's body belongs to his wife and the wife's body belongs to her husband, helping husbands see you have a responsibility in intimacy, 
not just a reception, you're not just getting something, but you have a, a responsibility to protect uh, and to love and to care for and to nurture this woman. And if your intimacy isn't doing those things, you've, you failed. I think that's really the, the principle, seemingly the principle of Exodus 31, going back mm -hmm. to that case law that I, I think speculative that Paul's got in his brain here. But, you know, in that particular passage, it's about the mutuality, the relationship, mm -hmm. the husband kills the animal, the wife prepares the animal, the husband skins the animal, the wife makes mm -hmm. clothing, the husband gives the wife, you know, sexual activity, and she provides children, there's a mutuality of that. And when when that's abandoned or neglected in that passage, that's where you get the, she's free to go, you know, in the yeah. Old Testament. And so I think Paul is using similar language here, pre setting up his abandonment clause. Yeah. Regardless of where you fall on that, we can at least agree that mutuality is a centerpiece of that. And I love, I love the counsel of, um, what is it again? It's support and safety. safety and stability. Stability. I love that. And uh, this is one of the things that what I love about David, guys, is he is a mm -hmm. practical theologian. This is exactly what we're looking for in, uh, in counseling here is to take the scripture and apply it practically to people's lives. And I think if a husband can really wrestle those three things to the ground, then, then his family can flourish. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a huge win. Well, and that's, that's okay. No, that's, I mean, that's what, I mean, really, you're the one that gave me that concept of, of sort of the, the power under peace, the sort of uh, uh, holding up to see, see your, your family flourish. And I think, you know, that same principle really should apply in intimacy. If in the bedroom, my wife is not able to flourish, I have failed to lead her well. Uh, and so I, I think your, your, your principle of power uh, under versus power over is really you know, if you can look at all these areas of marital dynamic through that lens of power under versus power over, I think it opens up a lot of practical uh, application opportunity. Awesome. I mean, I, help us think through for a moment while I got you. I just, mm. I want to think of all the ways I want to use you in this class today, but um, can you give us some practical next steps as counselors when we encounter this type of dynamic in the counseling room? Uh, yeah, you mean um, if uh, if we discover in a counseling session that there is coercive sex going on in in the home? Yeah, that would be a huge help if you could just. Give Sorry, us you there, Chris? I lost you for a second. Yeah, yeah, we're still here. Um, yeah, so are, are are you suggesting like in the counseling session we find out there's coercive intimacy going on? What do we do next? I think that would be great. Are, are you willing to share some some tidbits with us? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, just sort of thinking off the cup. I don't know that I have a specific step one, step two kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, if, if it's a victim, I think you obviously want to enter into an immediate care relationship with that individual, find out how this has impacted them. Um, I think make sure that you work to get them the appropriate um, guidance and care and support that they need, uh, and then figure out you know, the, the reality, I think, is if if this level of intense, I mean, in, in some sense, it is it is sexual assault. If that's what's happening in the home, it's probable, highly probable, there's other forms of it going on as well. And so making sure that you do all the necessary things to find out how safe the victim is, how prepared they are um, to um, uh, get to safety if need to, if they need to, all, all those sorts of steps. 
Um, uh, and of course, all of that without overwhelming victims and all those necessary caveats. It's, it's again, um, it calls for having a good advocate if you can find one. Yes. <laughs> so um, in terms of if you find out it's going on with guys, you know, my experience and, and other people surely have had different experiences. My experience has been guys reveal this unintentionally um, and usually because they feel justified. They, they, it makes sense to them. They, they couldn't possibly be doing something wrong. Um, they're just, you know, uh, they're trying to be biblical. They're, they care about the intimacy of their marriage or they're just frustrated and fed up that their wife, you know, won't supply the need that they think they are owed in that moment. And so they say little things. And so I think the important thing is to have your, your radar up and to listen for the kinds of little details that may suggest more is going on in the intimacy and the relationship than it appears. And then asking the appropriate questions to gather more of that information, more of that data. Um, asking them about what do you mean by this? And, um, you know, how do you respond when your wife says no? How often does your wife, you know, refuse to have sex? And, you know, asking all those kinds of questions that will allow me to get a better picture. And then if, if you have the, the wife in another counseling relationship kind of signaling to whoever her counselor or advocate is that this is data that may be helpful as well, if you can, you know, glean appropriately and carefully that information from her. Um, so that you can then kind of put together what is the picture of the home and of the intimacy in general or in, in specificity so that you can then approach the subject with the individual. And I think pointing out where you are getting the sense that there may be some simple tendencies on this person's part where they may be misunderstanding the scripture and then really press that home with them. Um, you know, the scriptures talk about intimacy from this language, uh, from this uh, picture. Does that represent what you're doing in the bedroom? You know, would your wife say as a result of intimacy with you that she feels safe, supported, and, and that your relationship is stable? Would she say that? Um, and so kind of helping guys think through that a little bit. Yes. You're grinning. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I'm thinking, you know, I often tell my basketball players a, a quote from John Wooden. I say, the little things make the big things happen. And what I love in perpetrator work, which I'm a little, I know I'm a little demented to love perpetrator work, but in that work is getting those, as you said, those little indications, piecing that puzzle together and creating a clear picture of that worldview. And then I love this, and you've done a, a great job explaining this thing, contrasting that with Jesus. Mm. Here's what you've explained is going on. Here's what Jesus expects from us. Yeah. And those little things getting pieced together into this big picture, uh, nothing, nothing is more effective. Uh, to change and conviction, I think, than the mirror of reality mm. contrasted with Jesus. So yeah. when we put the mirror of their reality, here's what you told me, against Jesus. Now, what are we going to do with it? So yeah. I, that's why I'm grinning, because I'm like, go get them. Like, <laughs> go in there, because that's, that's sanctification work right there, yeah. is just plowing that ground and giving that individual one, two choices, either deny it or accept mm. it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think, you know, the other thing I found helpful is, you know, um, sometimes I think in, in the Bible has a lot to say about the one another commands, about love, about compassion, about tenderheartedness, has a number of things to say about this. And I think sometimes in the church, we, we take those truths, those one another commands, and we set them over here. And then we talk about marriage as if it's different. Um, and, and especially in, in theologically conservative circles, we tend to talk about marriage um, 
within structures of headship and submission. And, and all, all those are, are, are perfectly biblical categories to discuss. And, um, but these one another commands, they still apply. And so if your intimacy in, 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 your, in your bedroom, if there's not tenderheartedness and compassion, um, if there's not bearing with one another, uh, if that's not going on, then the very descriptions of love that the Bible uses repeatedly are not marking the most loving relationship you're supposed to have, humanly speaking. So I think, you know, taking those and saying to guys, okay, let's talk about, let's talk about the fruit of the spirit in your bedroom. You know, wh- where does gentleness come in? Uh, where does patience come in? Where does self-control come in? Uh, and so asking guys to evaluate and, and saying, you know, we would like the freedom to ask your wife to evaluate those things for you if, if, you know, if it's appropriate and she's in a safe place and those kinds of things. You know, would your wife say she feels like you exercise self-control? Um, yeah. And that's, that's great. I love that too. Sometimes I get pushed back. And we'll talk about it maybe later, PeaceWorks University gang, but sometimes I've got some pushback for starting my exegesis of Ephesians 5 at verse 1 rather than 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, Be imitators of God, uh, therefore, yeah. as dearly loved children. And then, of course, verse 21. Uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, I'll often bring that up. And it's amazing how often I get pushed back on that, which is exactly what you just brought up. Those one another's apply first yeah. in the context of our relationship to Jesus as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, and yeah then, absolutely. There's some unique ways in which it work out as husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, and masters. Yeah. But I am uh, astonished, very similar to you, that marriage is an institution that seems to stand alone. Yeah, sometimes distinct from our relationship with Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think as, you know, I'll speak as a pastor too. You know, I think, you know, if the way we preach those texts sense, tends to suggest marriage, or the principles about general relationships don't apply to husbands and wives. Those, that's different. There's a, a whole, you know, different set of categories, different ways of thinking about it. if the way we preach those passages communicates that we just reinforce all these ideas that victims in our pews are suffering under. And so, you know, I think being exposed to abuse changed the way I preached texts. It it enlightened me to just the sense of, okay, you need to uh, um, uh, preach this text, teach this text, and apply this text with a myriad of people in mind, sensitive to the ways that some people will hear this word and some people will hear that word. So. I think for me too, I... I don't know if I had a leg up. I understood aspects of oppression, but I didn't understand what it was like to be oppressed. I knew the stories of family members from, you know, from the mountains who were treated a certain way or who were exploited by industry and, and coal mining in particular and some of the losses and harm that was done. And so I understood it from a theoretical perspective. It wasn't until I met some of my dearest friends of color helped me understand that, you know, I could always change my accent. I could always tell people I was from somewhere else, right? I had a leg up because of my skin color in many ways. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until I got involved in this work that I realized how many women and children, how often women and children are suffering at the hands of power. And I agree, it changed the way I preach and it changed the way, and some people would say this is a bad thing. I don't know that it's a bad thing, because who can relate more to oppression than a first century Jew living uh, from Galilee? I mean, who can understand it more? And uh, 
who can understand redemption more than the savior of the universe. So Absolutely. I agree. It's changed the way that I've ministered, um, serving with or alongside victims. And um, mm-hmm. hopefully, Lord willing, I'll spend the rest of my life doing it. But I can hear that in YouTube, brother, and I, I mm-hmm. appreciate it. This, uh, this passage that we've been dancing around and talking about today, which this is, these are my favorite masterclasses, by the way, when we're just chewing the fat. Um, I'm going to give you the, the last word if there's anything that's been left unsaid about our use of this passage and sex and marriage. You know, I, I think on the one hand, you know, we use this passage to talk about conjugal rights. And, and there is an obvious sense in which uh, sexual intimacy is something of, a, of an expectation within marriage. Uh, nobody goes into marriage thinking, well, we'll probably never have sex. Um, and so, you know, there, there is something, and Paul is implying here that, you know, you aren't to withhold sex from your spouse. And so using sex as a sort of a, a, a weapon, you know, holding it over someone's head and saying, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to use this if you don't give me what, I'm not going to give you sex if you don't give me what I want. Yes, that is, that is sinful and wrong. But I think as, as with all things, you know, uh, we talk about case-sensitive counseling uh, at our program here. So, yes, it may be that this is a problem you've seen before, but this is a unique individual with a unique story. And so you need to know how to apply the, the common principles to their situation. So, yes, it's true that there are things called conjugal rights, but understanding how to apply that in this situation makes a big difference. And what some people view as conjugal rights, what some abusive husbands view as conjugal rights is really just their own sinful selfishness. It's power and control in the bedroom. And so teaching the passage in a way that reinforces their or validates their own power and control and their selfishness uh, undermines what God has intended for sexual intimacy to be in, in marriage. So I think, you know, I don't want to do a disservice to the text. It does talk about not withholding sex. But as with all things, you apply that scripture to unique individuals in unique situations. So making sure that you have enough information to appropriately apply that in a way that will bring holiness and joy to everybody involved. That's great. It's a, it's a great reminder. Sexual assault is not about sex, it's about power. And, uh, and while the passage is talking about sex, we've certainly seen, right? how it has been weaponized. So super thankful. Hey, brother, tell us, tell my folks, and we'll link to everything in the, in the site here. Where can my folks find out more about you and your ministry and some of the things that, that you've produced and especially sure. this new work that came out with you and your wife? Yeah, well, that's kind of you to ask. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I write not as frequently as I used to, but uh, I write at uh, pastordaveonline.org. Um, there's plenty of better websites to check out, but if you view all of those, you're welcome to check out mine as well. Um, we have a couple of different resources there. We have some video curriculums we've put together as a, a counseling ministry. And, uh, and then I've written a book with PNR, uh, and the biblical counseling coalition on addictive habits, which Chris was kind to endorse. And so, uh, you can find that, uh, um, uh, at PNR.com or Amazon or wherever you do your shopping. Uh, and then my wife and I uh, just released uh, a couple months ago a book on eating disorders. Uh, she suffered from an eating disorder for about 10 years or over 10 years. Uh, and I suffered from not being a very good helper for a long time. And, uh, and so uh, we wrote the book that really we felt like we needed all those years ago. And so uh, we got some very kind people to uh, say it was, uh, it was good enough to publish. And so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we took the opportunity and that came out with New Growth Press uh, just here in uh, April. So 
Fantastic. Guys, check out Pastor Dave. We'll be sure to put some stuff, some links in here so you can get to know him better. Brother, thank you for joining us in the masterclass. It's been awesome having you. Thank you for having me.